This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Death by Southwest, the podcast where each week I share a different grisly murder story unique to the American Southwest while my sister and co-host tries to piece together the clues and unravel the mystery behind each of these heinous crimes. I'm your host, Margo. And I'm Jenna. And we are here back with part three of The Toy Box Killer. And... I think I've decided that three parts is too long. Too many. Too many. Just feels like it's it's dragged out a little bit, but it is a pretty intense story. So I guess there's a purpose to dragging it out. And it's also, it would be like a very, very long. It's long and intricate. That's why mm-hmm. it's three and also three. Three. Too many. So yeah. Too long. Yes. So for those of you just joining us, hopefully not for the first time, because then this part probably... This episode won't make much sense, but we have been and are continuing to dive into one of the most twisted crime stories to ever emerge from the Southwest. This is the story of David Parker Ray, a name that is now synonymous with pure evil. Dubbed the Toy Box Killer, David Parker Ray's heinous crime spanned over four decades, leaving a trail of victims and unimaginable horrors across New Mexico. Today, we will wrap up this horrific story as we continue to explore his dark psyche, look at the depths of his depravity, and learn more about the unsuspecting victims who fell into his clutches. And for anyone listening, we did start recording this the other night at my house, but then we did an Instagram live and some bonus content and ended up not being able to finish. So now we are finishing this part three, but we are finishing at Jenna's house. So if there is a slightly different sound to parts. Or a dog lapping up water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I just wanted to, to let you know why. And we've already done our sense of place on part one. Uh, part two, we kind of did a little uh, truck driver special. And so we're going to, we're going to kind of, we're not really going to have much of an intro for this one. There are a few little things that we wanted to talk about. We got like a couple brief listener questions. One thing that I wanted to mention is I wanted to give a shout out to our five patrons because I'm not sure how much we've talked about this, to be honest, but, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about when when we started this podcast, I was um, a full-time employee at a media production company, and this was part of my job. Um, I mean, we we came up with the idea and we enjoyed doing this, but it was also part of um, part of my job. So I was making money. I had an income. Do you, can, can maybe, I think I know, well, I do know, but I don't know how to explain it. Can you explain just briefly mm-hmm. how um, it was part of your job? Because it was like, if this podcast became a thing, it uh-huh. would bring the media company revenue is that correct yeah okay yeah 
So, I, I, you know, the the company I worked for, we did podcast, film, and TV, and we had several true crime podcasts. It's a very popular genre in podcasting. And uh, on some company meeting, we were talking about how we'd love to have more female-hosted true crime at the company. Um, and somebody suggested, like, well, Margo, why don't you like true crime? Like, you could do it. Why don't you do it? come up with something? And I was like, well, maybe. Sounds interesting. You know, I'm usually behind the scenes, like producer. I didn't know how I felt about that, but I talked to Jenna about it. I came up with a name, and then together we kind of flushed out what this podcast would be or what we thought would be kind of comfortable and authentic to us and what we would enjoy doing and did some couple months of trial runs and whatnot and then yeah and then death by southwest was born um but as a producer at the company producing this show hosting this show was part of kind of my daily weekly workload in addition to producing other shows and and other you know various tasks and since then, I am no longer with that company um, and am not at liberty to explain much more than that, except for that there were some financial issues and, um, and, and, and we have parted with, with that company. So we are now fully independent and I am fully unemployed. <laughs> um, so... I wanted to, you know, whether I'm employed or not, we appreciate everyone supporting the show. Anyone who listens, that's a huge support period. Anybody who leaves us reviews on Apple, um, who reaches out to us, all of those are different ways to show support. And we are really, really grateful for that. And then also Patreon is a great way to support the show. It's something that is new to both me and Jenna. So um, quite honestly, I've been kind of shit at Patreon up until recently. I'm trying to be better and making a real effort to put more exclusive content there, ad-free episodes, video episodes are coming to there, etc. Anyways, it's a great way to support the show. And while the goal has always been to have a good show and enjoy doing something together, undeniably, if we're able to bring in money from it, that's... There's a, a second level goal. Yeah, that's always a good thing. I think... Now that I that I'm actively looking for um, a job or work, I would love to be able to spend full time doing this, you know, for myself, like spend more time researching, more time on bonus content, be able to have us go to some of the locations and just really, really get involved in it even more so. Have the opportunity for expansion, which right. requi requires resources. Yes, exactly. So... Um, so we have we currently have five patrons on Patreon, and it's a really great way to support the show if you are able and willing and want to. And I wanted to say thank you to the people that we do have because they have stuck with us over the past few months as we're figuring out this Patreon thing. And one of our patrons I spoke about on the last episode, I said I didn't know how to pronounce his name, and he has since reached out and said I was close, but not quite. So I think I said Zeka, and it's actually Zeka. So Zeka Crook is one of our patrons who has sh shared a lot of great information and just really enjoyed getting to know him. Amanda Lee, Kate Vesely, Jenna Kagawa, and Brad Patterson. Um, so I wanted to say thank you to all of you for for supporting us and anybody else who, who is so inclined. We appreciate that. And, and our goal is to continue to put 
content on Patreon that isn't available anywhere else. I was thinking on Patreon, maybe if I could rewrite this where people could read it, uh-huh. you, we could take a photo or just type it, I guess, yeah, and say of these ideas and we could add to it. But of these ideas for oh, extra Patreon episodes, which... Would you Let, like? Yeah, which that's would you like idea. most? Yeah, that's a great idea. Because okay. I had asked that um, on Patreon before. But we didn't give them options. We did not. I just said, what do you want to see? And I think what a couple people responded was, we want to know more about your personal life, see what, see your life, see what you do, you know, whatnot. Um, and so we are working on that. But um, yeah, I mean, right now I'm trying to balance finding a job and not panicking constantly about not having a job while also doing the podcast. So I think the goal is always to grow it to the point where this could be my main my main focus. And that feels a little bit like icky. Yeah, to ask people to do that, it feels just a little bit uncomfortable. But if we're going to make a real, real go of this, I, I guess I got to. I got to a little bit. And then, you know, for a very easy, free and wonderful way to support us is by leaving review on Apple because that kind of pushes the podcast up the charts and makes it more um, discoverable. So uh, lots of people have left us reviews and we appreciate all of them. And anyone else who's listening, if you have a few minutes to leave us one, we appreciate that as well. So there's our big plug for the day. Um, Mostly for like the month or months because you don't, uh, yeah, I don't think you've often plugged mm-mm. the Patreon. No, I don't. I, it just feels uncomfortable. It feels a little kind of like, um, like, please, please give us money and support us. And it feels shitty. But in reality, it we I love doing it. I think you really enjoy doing this. It is a lot of work. And now, yeah, now that it's not part of my job, I don't want to have less time to spend on it. I'd like to continue being able to spend a lot of time on it. So sure. beyond that... Uh, we have a new website that I wanted to mention. It is just simply deathxsouthwest.com. Right now, there's not a ton of other information that you can't find in other places, but uh, we're, you know, the goal is to eventually have our merch on there within the next few weeks um, and to have more information about each of the cases. I'm going to start putting some of my research on there for anyone who's interested. I, I mean, I, it seems like people probably wouldn't be, but if you want to check it out, feel free to go check that out. We have, we, there's a section on there where me and Jenna have some of our favorite products that we buy on Amazon because we're both big Amazon people and just, you know, extra, extra things about us and about the show. So if you feel like checking that out, we only had a couple listener questions that came in. We had one that said, what makes, aside from our cases actually taking place in the Southwest, what makes them unique to the Southwest? And I don't think anything, right? It's not like... I think that's why you use the word there, unique. To the American Southwest, because yeah. they take place here. Yeah, it's not like every case is like somebody got killed by a javelina right. or something. Right, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Just good the lo- question. The the geography is... Is what makes it unique, Yeah. yeah. But a good question, and I and I kind of wish I had a better answer, but I think that that's the the truth. <laughs> yep. Um, and then somebody asked, uh, "Did you guys go to high school in Tucson? And which sister is older?" I did, Jenna. Jenna. Yeah, Jenna did go to high school in Tucson. I did not. I went to high school in Chicago, um, and I am older. And I'm not going to tell you how much older. <laughs> A channel. That also <laughs> leaves people to think like it could go either way. Also, what does it matter? Because they don't know how old I am. Yeah, I'm three and a half years older than Jenna. I guess you're right. And then we got something on one of our corrections lookup list forms that we have. And 
<laughs> I thought I, I thought this was funny. I don't know who sent this. It doesn't have a name. But she said, she or he said, nothing was incorrect. You guys just had a weird time grasping what a ward was. This is when we were talking about, I think it's the the one in Provo, Utah. And we were talking about the, the LD, like the, the Church of Latter-day Saints mm-hmm. and how the church that you go to is based on your ward. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the hell is a ward? And I like, you know, I read the definition. It's like geographical uh, areas. Oh, so it's not like a sect of the LDS. No, it's it has to do with geography. Yeah, and, uh. we ta- and we talked about that, but um, this person explained it a little more. Uh, they said, in this area of Utah, the majority of the population is Mormon. So a ward is basically just your neighborhood. A few hundred families in one specific small area. She said, from there, there are multiple wards. Five to ten wards are called a stake. And the larger LDS churches are called stake centers. So it's like the Church of Latter-day Saints, the uh-huh. church, the ward, the stake, the stake ward or whatever you said last. I think it's like the ward is the small community. And then you take a bunch of those wards, you put them together and that's a stake. Oh. And then the the church in that area is the cent- the stake center, the right, center of the, the stake, thing. I guess. Well, also um, ward makes sense. Like I, I think probably maybe we over, probably maybe we overthought it because like a ward, like a ward of a hospital, like yeah. a hospital ward or yeah. a prison ward. Well, and, um, in I do know that in Louisiana there are wards like the Ninth Ward and this and that's like areas of oh, New, Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah, you know that from that show. Well, also maybe you've been there. I have been there, but also I know it from, and from that show, Your oh, Honor. The, I guess that's the only way I know it. And then also my teaching partner years ago, she was uh, from New Orleans, so I knew lots about it. Is the Ninth Ward where that? show yeah. where the shit yeah. went down yeah oh, such that's one of my favorite first episodes of every any series, series. ever yeah that's excellent don't let me go on go on um and then this person said ysa young single adults is where you would go after you were too old to keep going to church with your parents but hadn't been married yet and then they said it's weird weird stuff i know but i love the show so i just thought that was an interesting kind of informative little tidbit so thank you very much. I don't know who that was, but thank you very much for submitting that. And other than that, we did get one voicemail, but I it, it like I think I'm going to save it because it had it has nothing to do with true crime, this show, or save it, yeah, or anything else. So I think I'll save it, and um, and I think we'll just jump into the episode here. I can't wait. <laughs> Last time we left off, there were a few things that we covered in the part two. Um, Cynthia V. Hill uh, escaped, ran to a neighbor's house. They called the police. So that's, we, we got about that far in, in that one. We also kind of wrapped up with the FBI having found the toy box and picking it apart, collecting evidence and learning about everything in that trailer. Uh, We also discussed several potential victims that the police at this point were trying to link to David Parker Ray, um, people that had disappeared over the years. And and now police, you know, nothing had ever come of it. And now police are kind of going back and being like, oh, maybe there is a connection here. He, you know, he worked, one of the people like worked with David Parker Ray like that. I also think good. Yeah. And also remember episode Two, part two, I think mm-hmm. it was like, 
the victims would be right in front of their face, a couple of them, and they wouldn't investigate that. Right. So I just have a bit of a stomach churn related to all of that. Nonetheless, good. Absolutely. So in terms of that we were discussing these victims, there were two victims that we didn't discuss. And both of them played a fairly important role in kind of how this story wraps up. So one of these victims or potential victims, I guess, was a woman named Sylvia Marie Parker. She was about 22 years old and believed to be homeless, residing near Elephant Butte Lake. Uh, She was thought to be acquainted with David Parker Ray through his daughter, Jessie. She was known to have sold methamphetamines, cocaine to David Parker Ray's daughter, Jessie, from time to time. She also had two kids that she was living with, um, apparently in a tent that she had possibly borrowed from David Parker Ray. And so on July 5th, 1997, Tom McCooley contacted the authorities to report the disappearance of his half-sister, Sylvia Marie Parker. He told police that she struggled with drug addiction. She was involved in street-level sales of narcotics in order to survive and get by and support her kids, but that he spoke to her regularly. And when he couldn't get a hold of her by phone, he was concerned. So he went to her tent and to, to kind of investigate and see what what was going on. And she wasn't there, but her kids were there, which which like raised a red flag. She didn't typically leave her kids alone at, at their tent um, if she could avoid it, and especially not for extended period of, periods of time. So he was concerned. He, he took the kids with him to his own house, talked to the police, and cooperated with the investigation. The police began looking into it. According to Tom McCooley, the, the half-brother of Sylvia Marie Parker, his police report her disappearance was, he suspected it might be connected to a drug transaction that had gone wrong or something like that. And this was kind of a common occurrence in the area that she was residing, apparently. But police, you know, of course, wanted to investigate to make sure they scoured the area, areas that she was known to be, areas that she was known to do drug deals. And they eventually came across her body slumped on the floor of an abandoned, it said saloon in the article, one of the articles, another one said building. Yeah, I mean, it was an abandoned building, basically. It appeared that she had been strangled. She'd also been there for a little while, so it was was difficult to tell because there's some decomposition yeah Yeah. Um, but there was no immediate signs of torture or sexual assault police continued to try and investigate but being that she didn't have a lot of ties to anything you know being homeless unfortunately the investigation really hit a standstill Um, like she didn't have a mailbox like maybe she had a cell phone at her or what year was this uh, 1997. Oh, probably not. No. So no cell phone. I mean... Yeah, she had yeah. very little ties, to, yeah. like tethers to the day-to-day World. life. Yeah. yeah. So the investigation kind of hit a standstill for, for quite a while. That is until 1999 when these stories about David Parker Ray and his crimes hit the media after Cynthia V. Hill escaped. We talked about her in the last episode. So she escaped. She, you know, she... She went to the neighbors, the police came, and she went to the hospital. And so she survived, was seemingly, I mean, I don't even want to say okay. She was alive, which is She fought for her life, and she got out of there. Thank goodness those neighbors were home. Were home and let her in, right? I mean, I'm not, I I wouldn't, it just, she probably looked scary. 
well, yeah, she was, remember she was naked, right, blood just, everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and thank God they let her in because remember that I think the last thing I said on the last episode was that police, Cindy Hendy was stabbed by Cynthia in the neck and she had called 911, but then hung up before kind of completing anything. But police decided to go investigate anyways, that even that hang up call. And so as they were pulling up there to investigate that, David Parker Ray and Cindy were pulling away and they apprehended them. So that's, I think, literally the last thing I said on the last episode. And so I was thinking, also lucky that those neighbors were home because maybe, what if the police hadn't gotten there and Cindy and David had gotten off the, you know, off the property and to go looking for Cynthia, you know? I mean, could have gone so many different ways. So once the story of Cynthia's escape and David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy's suspected involvement hit the news... Another woman named Angelica Montano came forward reporting that she was also sexually abused and tortured by David Parker Ray and his girlfriend. She told police that she lived in a nearby trailer and had simply gone to to David's door one day asking to borrow some cake mix, which is an odd thing to borrow, but fine. She said that David very quickly grabbed her, pulled her inside and told her that she was being kidnapped. Then Cindy and David stripped her down, chained her to a table, and attached electrodes to her body, um, shocking her multiple times to the point where she passed out from the pain. Uh, They then transferred her to the gynecological table, strapped her down, and drugged her while also forcing her to perform various sexual acts on both of them and continuing to shock the most sensitive parts of her body with electrodes. So she was, I imagine, in and out of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Don't miss what happens next in today's episode. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
So, so uh, Angelica had was yeah in and out of consciousness, like you said. She was for days drugged, raped, and tortured, and continued to beg for her life, promising David and Cindy that she wouldn't go to the police. And amazingly, after several days, David, for whatever reason, acquiesced and decided to let her go. He loaded her into his car, drove her out into the desert, and left her on the side of the road, on the side of the highway, just out in the middle of nowhere. I wonder how he picked, and I don't know if it was a conscious thing, or like not conscious, but like there was no baby rhyme or reason to whom he, well, you've only said this one person, because the other one escaped, the other other person. And then the woman before that, Kelly Garrett, I think we talked about her, I can't remember, episode one, I think, she, he slashed her throat and left her by the side of the road. He thought she was dead, I think, yeah. But he did say that he, his decision to let victims go or kill them was based on his mood. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, quote unquote, makes sense as in no rhyme or reason from an outside perspective. Right. So Angelica was left by the side of the road and picked up by an off-duty law enforcement officer. She explained to him what happened. He didn't believe her and chose to drop her off at a bus stop and left her at a bus stop. Once she got back home, she did call the police to tell them about the incident, but there was apparently no follow-up. So now, after she saw this about Cynthia on the news, she decided this was the time to come forward. And with Angelica, Cynthia, and then Kelly Garrett, also from years ago, the one she's the one who remember she went she, she ended, went home to her husband and he divorced her because he thought she was cheating. Right, he didn't believe what she said. Right, she got double non-beliefs. Oh, yeah, gosh. So now police have multiple victims who are potentially viable witnesses. They also have the the whole toy box that they're picking apart and they are more motivated than ever to conduct a very thorough investigation that will hopefully put David and his accomplices away for the rest of their lives. No, no, just getting ready in case there is something. (laughs) So during this continued investigation, police approached various individuals in the kind of neighborhood I think really just in truth or consequences and in Elephant Butte because both were very small places. Um, Just looking for any possible additional information. They talked to multiple neighbors. Um, One individual described David as a really nice guy who kept to himself. But another person shared a very disturbing incident where Cindy, David's girlfriend, was a little bit drunk apparently, and um, had gone to this neighbor's house. And as her as they were hanging out, Cindy had disclosed that her and Ray had been killing individuals for a while, and she found it very exhilarating. Uh, and Wow. But and did did he not believe? Did it, the neighbor, I don't right. think, believed it. was like, oh, she's a little tipsy, yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Cindy told this neighbor that, you know, we kill people and then we dump their bodies in Elephant Butte Lake. And I think the neighbor thought, yeah, right. Because it's too overt. Right. It's yeah. too off. Like, who yeah. says that? Um, but once, you know, at this point in 1999, when they have multiple victims and the entire toy box, authorities decided to to investigate further into that. They did a cursory dredging of the lake. Unfortunately, nothing really significant was found. Also, during their during their inquiries with neighbors, they discovered through one of the neighbors something that directly linked Sylvia Marie Parker, 
the woman I just spoke about a minute ago, a few minutes ago, who had two kids lived in the tent, that, that linked her to David Parker Ray. They found out that at the time of her disappearance, her boyfriend at the time had been a man named Dennis Roy Yancey, who was a known acquaintance of David. There was a witness that said Yancey was at the bar where Sylvia was seen the night she disappeared, the night that she was last seen. Mm. As a result of this kind of new information, in addition to these other victims and and just everything is kind of coming together now. So they they decided to bring in Dennis Roy Yancey for questioning. The story that Roy gave was that Marie Parker had in fact been a victim of David Parker Ray, that she had been abducted while she was in the toy box. She was systematically tortured over a period of a, a couple of days. Uh, when she wasn't being tortured, she was placed on a cot and slid underneath uh, a part of the the, uh, the wall in the toy box that they could shut and lock. And at the end of all of this, uh, the information that Roy Yancey gave us was that he was instructed to kill Marie Parker by strangulation. How did you come up with the idea to, to kill Marie? Uh, that was David Ray Parker's idea. And now they ended up giving me a rope and telling me to, to strangle her. And she wasn't dying fast enough. Okay, but you said she wasn't dying fast enough. Was she struggling or? Yeah, she was struggling. We have no doubt that his statement was accurate. His details were such that uh, it's unquestionable that Roy Yancey killed Marie Parker. When they brought him in for questioning at this point, he, as you heard, confessed to murdering Sylvia Marie Parker under David's orders. And after more questioning, uh, Dennis Roy Yancey also admitted that he had witnessed David Parker Ray and his daughter and Cindy torture many other women. And he didn't report it because he was afraid of David Parker Ray. Police told him that unless he turned, he turned state witness and testified, his sentence would be unbearably long. So he, he did. He agreed to do that. Like I said earlier, the, the last episode ended with that David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy were arrested, detained, brought in, um, and charged with 12 counts that included kidnapping, aggravated battery, and conspiracy, I believe sexual assault, multiple charges, but none of them were murder. They had nothing that they could concretely link a murder charge to anyone at this point. Attempted murder, things like that, but not murder. They had David and Cindy and at this point, uh, Dennis Roy, Yancey, all in custody. And they continued their investigation. They continued searching for bodies. They had massive search parties, dogs, helicopters, the FBI. They had every resource possible searching for bodies. I think in the last episode, I mentioned that they did uncover some bones on the property, but they, but they ended up being animal bones. So the the investigation continued searching for bodies, cataloging evidence, and they wanted to be really meticulous about it because if there was any mistakes, it could affect their ability to to charge David Parker Ray. But it se- it continued to seem like police were were several steps behind David Parker Ray that he had really covered his tracks because despite valiant efforts, police were never able to recover any bodies, any remains, any proof that David had ever murdered anyone, even though he had written about it in detail in his journals, even though Dennis uh, Roy Yancey claimed that they had murdered multiple people. And once they got Cindy, once they had Cindy in custody and were questioning her, she 
also admitted that she had taken part in the disposal of several bodies, but because no remains were found, there was no evidence aside from just people's testimonies. And aside from, and this again doesn't matter because it's no actual tangible bodies, I guess, but the toy box they found. But so within the toy box, Mm -hmm. did they find DNA evidence? This was early for DNA evidence back back then. So, and I guess even potentially if they did, DNA isn't a close and shut case or I don't know if that's what it's called, but you know what I mean? Like, because there could be many arguments of, well, that person came over and borrowed a slingshot or whatever. Or this person was willingly involved in BDSM and wanted to be involved Uh, in this. So, I mean, there was, there was evidence of other women being in the trailer, certainly. And I don't even mean from DNA. I just mean, uh, remember I said in the last episode, I think that they had found like rings and jewelry and hair clips and, and, and possessions from multiple different women, many who they didn't know who they were, but who's to say they weren't there just hanging out. And even if all the things point to this is what happened, it doesn't matter in a court of law. Exactly. Ultimately, until there's that evidence. Yes. Um, And police were just at their wits end because they're getting all this information from Dennis Roy Yancey and from Cindy, who apparently flipped on David almost immediately once she was in custody. Uh, She said that that, uh, David would instruct her and and Dennis Roy Yancey at as to how to dismember and bury the bodies, dump them in Elephant Butte Lake or nearby ravines. But because none of it could be found, it was just it was just talk. Because that's interesting. So I was thinking, well, did he use some sort of dissolvent or whatever it's called to, I don't know what, but you imagine or I would imagine that David or Cindy, if they're given up these details at that point, once they're in custody or whatever, or even just with when they're giving up information, they just give it up. Well, and remember at a certain point in the last episode, I think I said that that man was fishing and he had pulled up like a, a gunny sack mm-hmm. and he thought maybe it was an animal, but then he ended up being like, oh, maybe it's human remains, which it was. They couldn't link it to anyone. And when police questioned um, David about it, he said, I don't know anything about that, but I do know if you are going to get rid of a body, you want to scoop out the insides, fill it with cement or rocks, and then dump it in the lake. Oh, it sinks down. Right. So, I mean, he never... But of course, they dove down. Like, if they were searching yeah, they the lake... they dredged l- it, the lake. Yeah. yeah, they pulled the lake. So, he never fully admitted to, at this point, he hasn't admitted to murdering anyone. He's clearly strange, has weird journals, has weird accounts of things is he arrested or just in custody he's arrested for the other things he's arrested for the things that he was charged with he's been arrested and detained both him and cindy at this point you know with three living victims kelly who the husband who divorced her um cynthia who got away and then angelica who came who went to the police after it happened they didn't believe her and then she came forward after cynthia hit the news so three living victims ample video they have video of kelly garrett they have the audio recording that david made they have his journals they have all these this jewelry and things from they have all of this evidence you would think or i thought at least as i'm learning about as i was researching this i was like oh this is like open shut like he is getting the death penalty they're going to convict him of murder and charge him with murder no problem but that was 
not the case. Is he still in prison? You'll find out. Oh, shit. I always jump ahead. That's okay. So beyond the fact that there were no actual bodies or remains, this trial was riddled with issues. Right off the bat, Judge Mertz ruled that the cases for the crimes against Cynthia, Angelica, and Kelly would be severed, which meant that he would be tried separately for each. And at first I kind of didn't understand, well, okay, so what? Like, what does that matter? But prosecutors said that this damaged the case because each woman's story would have corroborated and kind of like supported the other if it had been one trial. Did they, was this a jury trial? Yes. So does that mean they had separate jurors for each trial? Yeah, okay. Totally well, separate that makes, trials. That, okay, that, then what you just said yeah. even more so matters or makes yeah. sense to me. Of like, so you're only getting one woman's testimony and hearing one woman's story as opposed to hearing all three of them combined together. Why, I wonder why it, it gets worse. It oh gets no. worse. The judge also ruled much of the evidence found in the trailer during the 1999 raid, like after Cynthia escaped, it would not be it could not be used in Kelly Garrett's or Angelica Montano's cases because he said no one could prove that this evidence that they found in 99 was present in 1996. Insane, which is, you know what the craziest part about that is, is that there's a videotape. David Parker Ray took a video of Kelly Garrett in 96, but the judge didn't care. He also suppressed uh, David Parker Ray's early interviews with the FBI and the New Mexico State Police. He banned media from jury selection. He really, there was a lot of of talk at the time saying that it was like he didn't want David Parker Ray to get convicted. He was doing everything in his power to kind of put these trials in his favor, like tip them in his favor. In David Parker Ray's Mm -hmm. favor. That's what I was thinking at first. But but David Parker Ray wasn't necessarily like a high stat. I don't mean that rudely, no. but like he's just a person, right? Just a person, yeah. It, like, okay, so if it's like a high status, huge to government sure. or I don't know, sure. maybe. But also then I was thinking maybe it was just an old school by the book, hardcore by the book, quote unquote, yeah. judge who if it doesn't meet, you know, like there, oh, really? you can find millions of reasons to take it off. Also to circle back to something, a show that you mentioned earlier, Your Honor, um, I think that we'll never know. I don't, I'll tell you right now, I don't know why the judge yeah. did this or was acting in this way, but that show kind of enlightened me to see that there are sometimes things that happen behind the scenes that nobody can understand or know about why a judge would act that way. That was the perfect example in that show of like, he was being threatened and blackmailed that if he didn't rule certain things in the courtroom, his son would be harmed. Definitely. And so I'm not saying that that's the right. case here, but, the, but there could be extenuating circumstances. These are humans. Know. These right. judges are humans with right. real lives and spouses and children and cousins and friends and, mm-hmm. and problems in their past. Mm-hmm. Also, I think about that show and I'll be quick. I was thinking you were going to say that show depicts a judge who seemingly besides there and sees even more than fair sees people who are on trial as humans and, mm-hmm. and at least a couple times that I saw the show in the, in the courtroom mm-hmm. um, accounts for them being human. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that works both ways, I guess. Oh, totally. You know, you can be human. And you can in, be both in the same judge. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone's all duh. <laughs> 
it's true. But sometimes we got to talk it out. <laughs> um, so after the jury selection for this first trial, the first trial was going to be Ke- Kelly Garrett. And so they did the jury selection. Um, quickly after the jury selection, David Parker Ray suffered a mild heart attack and had to go to the hospital. He had a history of heart trouble. Of course, the prosecution thought he was trying to delay the proceedings, and it did delay them. The judge postponed the trial for a week. Lucky for him, the the postponement ended up excluding a couple of expert witnesses. I don't have details on it, but apparently there were a few expert witnesses who were supposed to participate in the trial, but due to the delay, then they couldn't. Which I was makes wondering it questionable. Totally. And I was wondering if they got Kelly at this time, Kelly's ex husband in there. I don't believe so. <sighs> so the trial was postponed for a week, and in that week, Angelica Montano died from pneumonia. After the ordeal that she went through in ninety seven with David Parker Ray, she turned to drugs to cope with the pain that she was dealing with after the PTSD. Yeah. And being a drug addict, her immune system, and, and so she she died. And based on, without her testimony, it was determined that the, there was no trial. Yeah. They called the trial off. Ugh. So at this point, David Parker Ray had now gotten away with, without any type of punishment or... Conviction. Conviction, yeah. He, he didn't have to answer for his kidnapping, raping, and torturing of Angelica. Alleged. Yeah, alleged. You're right, yeah. But they still had Kelly Garrett's trial and Cynthia V. Hill's trial. So in July of 2000, Kelly Garrett took the stand, forced to sit only several feet away from the person who had kidnapped, tortured, and raped her for days. David Parker Ray was sitting 10 feet away from her as she shared her account. And um, I had seen an interview with her where she said that she was, she didn't want to. She was terrified. She was of course, I mean, she did. Had, she had no interest in doing this, but she wanted to make sure he did not get back out in the world. So she did it, and she said that she, her, what she really wanted was to not cry. She didn't want to give him the satisfaction because she said he was just sitting there and he had this like smug smile on his face the whole time because she's obviously very upset talking about the most horrific trauma ever, but she didn't cry because she didn't want him to know how much he had affected her. I was going to ask, and you just answered, like I was wondering what his demeanor was. Did he keep looking down? He looked, he just was him regulation was just self. himself. He actually seemed, uh, I've read several accounts that he's seen, and, and there is, there's not footage, there's footage of him going into the trial and, and out of the trial, but the the judge at least initially suspended any media from the trial. And he, he seemed to be in good spirits the whole time. He kind of just seemed unmoved when when people who did take the stand cried no very little emotion and if anything just kind of a a small smirk on his face well i have to imagine he was like had to just authentic quote unquote authentically be that person who's like cut off from something if he could do all those things also thinking maybe he was just doing what some of the victims tried to do and act like everything's fine right so kelly had also stated that she she was very clear that she did not want the death penalty for David Parker Ray. She said it would be too easy. Yeah. She was hoping that he would spend his entire life in prison. I get that. Totally. You want him to suffer. An FBI agent from Virginia 
and one of the most foremost experts in the field of investigating criminal sexual sadism testified in this trial. Her name is Mary Ellen O'Toole, and she testified that the examination of David's home and trailer um, that he had converted into the toy box and all of the sexual paraphernalia, drawings, everything they found there, she said that this suggested and she believed that he was a criminal sexual sadist was the title that she gave him in the trial. And once the trial was coming to a close, jurors deliberated for eight hours. However, they were unable to come to an agreement on the 12 charges. Two jurors said that they found Kelly's story to be just straight up unbelievable. They couldn't believe it. Several other jurors voted to acquit David Parker Ray because they felt that she wasn't a believable or persuasive uh, victim. God, I didn't know victims had to be persuasive. Yeah, she was not, I guess I what get they call a, not a sympathetic victim. I get it's a huge, like, for a general, I don't want to say normal person, but like someone who's not maybe into sexual sadism or just has never heard things like this. Right. It does. It is unbelievable. Totally. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Of course Obviously. not. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a video of it, but it's still... Oh, it's maddening. It's maddening. Yeah. And then, and then several other jurors said that they didn't think that it was torture. They thought that she was a willing participant. And that's likely because uh, David Parker Ray's defense team used the defense that the the sex trailer was part of David's fantasy life and that all sex was consensual. They were saying that these women consented to it and that's a, that's a really sticky area because part of it is is one of the participants acting like they don't want to be, you know, don't want to be involved like it's like a rape fantasy. Right, but a rape fantasy that's fine. It's actually more common than I thought. I've learned some things on that. Even if these women willingly said, tie me up, clamp my whatever sensitive parts, try this on me. These various victims at some point said, please, please let me go. Yes. So it doesn't, none of that matters. Right. As soon as that is said, then this is, then it doesn't matter. Right. But that was, of course, they have to have some defense for him in that. So that was their defense. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the fact that Kelly could really not remember much. She remembered certain things. She was able to identify him. She knew that he was somebody who had raped her. But remember, she was so severely drugged and then had her throat slashed that she really didn't remember a lot of the details. And she was honest about that. And that is, um, that was kind of the nail in the coffin of this of this verdict. And on July 14th, 2000, Judge Mertz declared a mistrial for Kelly Garrett. Ugh. You don't want to miss what happens next in today's murder story. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. She did receive a retrial. However, two days... Into the retrial, Judge Mertz died. I feel suspicious about that. Mm, Yeah. You know, I I get it could just be old age, stress, Mm -hmm. uh, heart attack, any of the things that would have naturally killed that person. Mm -hmm. And probably was. But also my brain first went to, oh, how convenient. Convenient, but also to like also not. Because, because he the, was kind of seemingly on not David's on his side, side but yeah, like exactly seemingly on his side. Exactly. You're right. Yeah. Okay. 
So this caused several more delays, but the retrial picked back up in April 2001, and the Court of Appeals upheld the judge, Judge Mertz, ruling to exclude certain pieces of, pieces of evidence. Um, nonetheless, after this retrial, David Parker Ray was convicted on all 12 counts, 12 counts of torture and sexual assault. But not murder. But not murder. This is just a small tidbit that really made my skin crawl. Uh, after his initial this conviction for Kelly, he gave an interview to offer his perspective and his side of the story. And in this interview, something he said that just, ugh, I hate it. He said, I feel raped. I was just getting pleasure out of giving women pleasure. I did what they wanted me to do. And this is what happened. So later in 2001, the trial for Cynthia Hill began. But it didn't get far because a week into his trial, David Parker Ray agreed to plead guilty and take a plea bargain. His defense team seemed to think there was just too much evidence in her case. And there was no chance that they would ever win. Plus, this plea deal, he agreed to take it because it police promised him more leniency for his daughter. So in 2001, he was sentenced to 224 years in prison. And prosecutors apparently said that that the victims, Kelly and uh, Cynthia, approved of this deal. They were happy with that. He was never getting out of prison at this point. So I guess, in essence, regardless of what he was actually charged with... He was never going to be free. The time was... Fitting to the crime, I, I guess. guess. I yeah. mean, still, it probably would have been, quote unquote, good to hear I d- we I- find you guilty. But of course, ultimately, yeah. he's still right locked up. And uh, David's daughter, uh, Glenda Jean Jesse Ray, was charged. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but Jesus. <laughs> was charged with kidnapping and criminal sexual penetration. She pled no contest and received a 30-month sentence with an additional five years to be served on probation. That is a small sentence. That's what, two and a half years? It's almost nothing. Soon after uh, David Parker Ray was sentenced, he tried to appeal. He claimed that his plea was involuntary and his, exhaust, quote, exhausted mind was clouded by his ill health, medication, and pressure applied by his lawyers. A panel of judges very quickly rejected his appeal and stated that he was not pressured and and his his ruling still stood. Prior to these trials and his sentencing, he was in, you know, he was detained in 1999. So he wasn't sentenced until late 2001. So he was in jail for, or prison for this whole time. And he had given a statement after his sentencing saying that his confinement had allowed him to reflect, read his Bible and quote, get right with God. He said that he had put his life in God's hands and that he couldn't change the past, but he could only be sorry for what he had done, even though I don't think he ever actually said that he was sorry. He had just kind of given this this quote that that's right. the best he could do. Um, mm. Police to this day believe that David Parker Ray was responsible for anywhere from 40 to 60 murders over the decades of his crimes, but without the bodies and only having diary entries and, you know, personal um, witness statements, they couldn't, those murders were never able to be prosecuted. And 
in terms of the other, his accomplices, the other people who were involved, Cindy testified against David for a lessened sentence, and she received a 36-year sentence for her role in the crimes. Um, She was scheduled to receive parole in 2017, so obviously a much less sentence, and she served two years of her parole in prison and was released on July 15th, 2019. So she is out in the world. As I said, Jesse Ray, David's daughter, was sentenced to two and a half years in prison for her involvement. She received five years probation. She is also out. Dennis Roy Yancey, um, he pleaded guilty to the murder of 22-year-old Marie Parker. He confessed to helping lure her into captivity, torture her, and strangle her. He was sentenced to 30 consecutive years for kidnapping and second-degree murder, but he was released on probation in 2011. Several years later, he received a DUI, which resulted in his probation being revoked. He went back to prison, served the rest of his original sentence, which was an additional eight years, and he actually just got out in 2021. And David Parker Ray, on May 28, 2002, he was being transferred to the prison where he would serve out the rest of his 224 years when he suffered a heart attack and died having served only a total of three years Isn't in that so, I mean, yeah, uh, m- mostly I think like, well, what the fuck? He should have suffered in there. But also like, wow, just wow. I don't know what to think. I have to process that, but wow. Yeah, because part of me thinks like, good, he died. And I hope it was a painful heart attack. And then the other part of me thinks, that's so unfair. That's such an easy, you know, d- no, don't get me wrong. Like death is... No, for nobody this, wants to die, but like he should have lived. Yeah, he should have had to serve. A, he was only, um, I want to say, sixty-eight when he died. Uh, I'll have to f- confirm that. I don't, I don't have it right in front of me, but he should have served twenty more years in prison. But a part of me thinks, <sighs> and I know only what you've shared about this David Parker Ray with me, but I just think like he was fucked up in one way or another, clearly, right? Like, yes, I'm not even assigning like mental illness. He was just something was fucked up with him. Mm -hmm. Probably his fault, I'm gonna say. I don't know why. I just want to say that. So, like, even if he had lived till a hundred in prison, some part of me thinks he would have just been like, "Eh, like, this is fine. Like, I essentially kind of like did what I wanted to do. I don't know. I mean, I'm just like talking, making shit up, but like either it's just weird timing. That is, wow. Oh God. Wow. You answered my earlier question. Yeah. Um, in 2011, the Albuquerque FBI released and you can find, I'll have to link this. I mean, I don't know who would want to see this, but the, the FBI released hundreds of images of the items that were collected in the investigation of the toy box, um, jewelry, clothes, hair clips and things. I mean, I would want to see that. That sounds easy, like less hard yes. to see than the, the words that came out of your mouth. Yes. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's not gory or anything, but it's when, when you really, cause I've looked at it when you look at it and think like this barrette belonged to some woman who we don't know who, who he definitely murdered, but we don't know and we can't but prove it. And murdered. now he's dead. Yeah. Frank Fisher of the Albuquerque field office said, quote, the FBI along with, its law enforcement partners in New Mexico is aggressively pursuing 
continuous leads and search for remains of any possible victims of David Parker Ray. We are asking family and friends of missing people to look over these photographs and contact us if they recognize any of the items. He also said, we're still getting good leads. And as long as we're continuing to get leads, and as long as the exposure in the press keeps generating interest in the case, we're going to keep investigating this. Which, So even though he's dead, David Parker Ray is dead, they're still continuing to, to hopefully find justice for some of these these unknown victims and not, I mean, this sounds like there's potentially a lot of unknown victims. Mm. Um, and I don't have a ton of information on, I don't really know where Kelly Garrett is, but I do have a little information on Cynthia Vigil, um, the victim that we, that we learned so much about in previous episodes. She seemingly did amazingly well for herself. She continued, she continued on once she, had worked through this to the best of her ability. She went to school to be a medical assistant and dental hygienist, and she completed both of those programs, but her criminal history, because remember she had been, uh, she was when she was abducted, she was awaiting kind of a trial, I believe, for drug trafficking um, or drug sales. And so her criminal history kept her from getting a job as a medical assistant or dental hygienist, which is very frustrating for her. God, she went to school first and then kind of found that out. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in, but in 2010, she went on to co-found a nonprofit organization called Street Safe New Mexico. It's an organization that helps women who are living on the street. She is a partner in the organization, Christine Barber. They pay for hotel rooms for women on the street to shower and sleep. They hand out essentials like clothes. And when a woman who is living on the street gets raped or assaulted, they help them with their court cases, testifying, making sure the women are prepared. And in the winter of 2020, she actually became one of the first people in New Mexico to begin the process for a pardon for her drug crimes. And I, I believe most re- the most recent news I could find is that Governor Michelle Grisham granted her a partial pardon um, for nonviolent offenses. So Good. potentially she can get one of those jobs that That's she has been looking say. into. Like, I'm not saying like, shouldn't there be like a balancing out account? Right. Like, let's give this woman a break. Oy. And perhaps I should have shared this before, you know, as if this woman hadn't been <laughs> through enough in her life. I've, I found this on her, her blog. She has a, a blog website and she wrote, these are her own words. She wrote, in 2016, I was pregnant. My life drastically changed once again when a fire burned down the motel that my family and I were living in. The day after the fire on May 26th, I lost my oldest son, Ruben, who was only 15, in a tragic firearm incident in which he was shot in the head. That same day, my second to oldest son was coerced into giving a false confession on an unrelated high-profile crime and entered the juvenile justice system. Two weeks later, the day after Ruben's funeral, I gave birth to my fourth son. I was also in the process of studying for the LSAT exam to enter law school with plans to improve the justice system. Did the fourth son live? I I mean, you were saying so many awfulness that I thought you were going to say like it was a stillborn or something. No, he did. Yeah, he did. I guess, Um, thank goodness for Jesus. And in an interview not long after, um, I believe, all the sentencing for David, for Cindy, everyone... uh, the interviewer asked Cynthia, do you forgive Cindy, David's girlfriend? And Cynthia said, do I forgive her? Yeah, I forgive her. I think there was a part of her that was David Parker Ray's victim as well. Oh, I mean, I, without knowing that, Generous I absolutely statement. know that. 
but yes, a generous forgiveness. Gener- I mean, I agree. But she's forgiving, hopefully, for herself. Yeah. And that's, I thought that was just a nice place to end because, I mean, after yes. everything she went through, to be able to be that generous with your your forgiveness, whether it be for you, for them, for anyone else, I mean, <laughs> that's impressive. I was going to say, she probably has to forget. I don't mean that, has to forgive, but like, she's been through all kinds of shit. Ugh. She's in a place maybe where it's like, just like... I got to unless she's not going to be on this physical or she just got to keep moving forward. So whatever makes it plausible for her. Yeah. Yeah, Let's end on that happy note. Yeah. She did forgive. She did forgive. And that's, we we are going to end there. Um, Anyone with any information about um, David Parker Ray, the potential victims or the um, items that were found in his trailer, this is apparently still an ongoing um, investigation to some degree. So uh, you're encouraged to call the FBI. I will include that number links to all of this in our show notes. And, and that wraps up the toy box killer part three, part three, final part, final part, Thank no God. more parts, no more parts guys. Yeah. You know, as we've said all along, there's a learning curve to doing this. I think two part episodes sometimes are, are, are great. I, I, it's too much to have it in one. Well, I was just saying this was an extra, not more important, but extra detailed and disgusting Yeah, details. Yeah. This was the heavy one. So I think aside from it being long and, and quite honestly, this could, we could do four more episodes. Like there's so much information. So this is, I won't a, be a part of that. Quite <laughs> frankly, an abbreviated um, version of it. But either way, this is the end of this three-parter. We thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you. DM us, leave us an Apple review, join our Patreon. We have a voicemail now. You can leave us a voicemail or send a text message. And another than that, happy Saturday, even though you guys will hear this Tuesday. Right. Happy Saturday. And thank you for listening. We appreciate all of you. Good night and good luck. And we will see you guys soon with a big bonus episode for all of this well i won't see them but they'll hear us they will hear us not on monday but on the following monday so bye 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 guys death by southwest is hosted by jenna schneider and margot carmichael executive produced by margot carmichael produced by jenna schneider Audio editing and sound design by Margot Carmichael. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck. Good night.